Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. We also have clips to play you from Sir Paul Tucker, the former Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, from our recent FT Banking Conference. And down the line from Zurich, we have Ralph Atkins, our Switzerland correspondent. This week, we'll be discussing news of Deutsche Bank's asset management flotation, developments between the Swiss banks and their Saudi clients, and that report from the FT's banking summit with those clips from Sir Paul Tucker. First, though, to Deutsche Asset Management. Laura, you've been taking a look at exactly what is being floated and how. Is everything as expected? This has long been in the pipeline. The idea that they're going to float it has long been in the pipeline, but as is often the case with Deutsche, things are never quite as you might have expected them. So they've pulled something out of left field hereby. Instead of doing a normal flotation and listing it as a normal company, they've decided to go for a different structure, which will make it a limited partnership. That's called a KGAA in German law. And the effect of doing this is that even if Deutsche has a shareholding below 75% in the new entity, they will still have full control until the shareholding falls below an as yet undisclosed level. Now that sounds great for the bank in that the bank is going to be able to maintain control while also getting in some cash from selling part of it. The problem is, as some investors have already pointed out, if you sell it in this way that may force a discount on the price because people are less keen to pay top dollar for an entity where they get ownership but they don't get control. Remind us why Deutsche is doing this flotation. Because it needs the money, which is the reason Deutsche does most things these days. This was Deutsche's way of raising additional capital. They also say it will allow the business to achieve its full potential, and they would say that, wouldn't they? How much is it likely to generate? So the valuation of it, we think, would be around €8 billion. Um, We're expecting them to float up to 25% of that. If there weren't any discount, that would give you a €2 billion contribution. Now they may get closer to 1.7, 1.8, but certainly it's a not immaterial sum for them. So they're going to be calling it DWS, which is the retail brand rather than Deutsche Asset Management. And you got to think that is a good thing for it because last year they had outflows of 5.5% and that was blamed on the noise around Deutsche Bank globally and the overall pressure on the group. So in that sense, you could certainly argue that the business will do better when it's outside of the Deutsche Bank name. And you can see that people, even though Deutsche has hopefully got the worst of its pain behind it, there are still some uncertainties going forward. So you can see how it might seem like it was a safer entity were it not owned by the bank. Also, being outside the bank, they can do more things to incentivise staff. They just have a lot more freedom than if they're curtailed within the Deutsche Bank group. And I can certainly see a branding advantage, even though they already use DWS for the retail brand, taking the Deutsche Bank name away from it, I think can only be a positive at this point. No offence to Deutsche. (laughs) Well, we'll see if they make a success of it. Certainly, Deutsche has struggled with its asset management business for many years. If they get it right this time, good luck to them. Thank you, Laura. 
So let's move on to our second item. And this is a look at Swiss banks in the light of the latest Saudi corruption cleanup campaign. We're joined by Ralph Atkins down the line from Zurich. Ralph, welcome. You and I reported the other day that the Swiss banks have begun reporting suspicious client activity to the Swiss authorities. This is, as I say, in the light of expectations that they may need to come clean about some client relationships in Saudi. Give us the full story. Yeah, essentially what's happening is that Swiss banks are under an obligation to report any suspicious transactions to the Money Laundering Reporting Office of Switzerland, which is part of sort of the international financial intelligence sort of network, if you like. And this is obviously a bit of a change from how we traditionally think of Swiss banks being very secretive and protecting the confidentiality of clients. I mean, they are now, of course, obliged to disclose anything they think could be suspicious, obviously, in the context of what's going on in Saudi Arabia. And because of all the media attention, I think banks have been now looking very closely at their client accounts and passing it on to the Money Laundering Reporting Office. As we reported, nothing further has happened as far as we know yet. There's been no sort of searches or freezing of accounts. And the Office of the Attorney General, which is overseeing the whole process, said in the statement to us that there'd been no sort of criminal proceedings as such started. So we're still very much at sort of the early stages of information gathering. Okay, well, we'll certainly be keeping a watch on this. But I suppose the overarching message from this, quite apart from the particularities of the Saudi situation, are that Swiss banks are maybe changing and they'd learned their lesson from previous scandals? Yes. You know, one person compared this to when we had the big scandal around FIFA that suddenly erupted. I think the attention that got about possible funds in Swiss bank accounts created a lot of similar activity by the Swiss banks and the Petrobras scandal in Brazil as well. So, yes, Swiss banks are obviously determined to do their due diligence and not be caught out this time. Well, we'll watch it closely, as I say. Thank you, Ralph, for joining us. And I should add, of course, that the individuals that the Swiss banks are looking at are essentially among the 200 people that were arrested a few weeks ago now in Saudi Arabia, connected to the Crown Prince's crackdown on corruption. Let's move on to our final item now and a look back at the FT's banking summit a few days ago. Caroline, thanks for joining us. We thought it'd be interesting to round up a few of the key points that were discussed at the conference. We started with a keynote speech from Sir Paul Tucker, who used to be Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, now heads a global think tank called the Systemic Risk Council. He was typically outspoken about many of the worries that he has about the stability of the world. And he started off by talking about how absurd he thought the complexity of bank capital had become. I've had more time since I was out of office to kind of watch what the brokers and the analysts say. It's absolutely extraordinary about banks. Loads of it is about something called AT1 and Tier 2 and all of that. And basically, this is all nonsense. There are only two types of capital that will help you or help society. One is tangible common equity, because that absorbs losses smoothly in a going concern. And the other are bonds that can absorb losses through bail-in or purchase and assumption in a gone-concern resolution. And those people that have been holding these through the kind of popular and other resolutions on the continent will be discovering that things that they were assuming could absorb losses in a going concern actually can't, all of which was demonstrated beyond doubt in about 2008. And it is depressing, frankly, that both the regulators have left the capital structure, the regulatory capital structure, so complex 
and the parts of the advisory parts of the industry find themselves having an interest, frankly, to extract rents by analysing and issuing this kind of stuff. So that's provocative, but I would like to see the regulators move to a two-tier capital structure. Tangible common equity, um, bailable um, bonds. He went on to criticise the fragility of clearing houses. There is a debate in this city, small c, big c, about LCH and the location of clearing houses. And of course that debate matters in degree. But banks became too big to fail by accident. And I don't mean to trivialise it, but no one planned for banks to be too big to fail. CCPs are too important to fail by mandate. By mandate from the most important political body in the world, the G20 Leaders Summit. And yet, and yet, there are no plans published for how CCPs would be resolved if they failed. And I do not understand why the Senate, the European Parliament, and perhaps here the Westminster Parliament, isn't creating merry hell over this. Because if one of these things fails, um, it will be an absolute calamity. So those are the two clips we have for you from Sir Paul's opening remarks at our summit last week. But actually, one of the most interesting things he had to say related to banker pay. Now, Caroline, you were listening closely to this debate, and this took place later in the day when Sir Paul was actually one of the audience members and questioned a panellist, Sergio Emotti, the chief executive of UBS, over this issue of banker pay. Tell us what you heard him say. Yeah, so Paul basically said, well, if banks didn't pay their staff so much, then surely that would help cover the cost of capital. Life would be a lot easier. And Sergio Amotti replied quite forcefully that Sir Paul didn't know what he was talking about and should check his facts and that, in fact, UBS had made a profit for the Swiss government after it was bailed out. And debates about pay really was motivated by people who felt frustrated that they weren't paid quite as much as bankers. So a pretty forceful rejection by Mr. Amotti of what Sir Paul had to say. And it, of course, reignited debates that we haven't heard for some time, actually, about the right level of banker pay. And of course, it's in the news over the last few days for another reason as well, because as we know, UK banker pay is restricted by EU rules that limit the multiple of basic pay that can be paid in bonuses. And we had some interesting interventions in recent days, both from Mark Carney, the Governor of the Bank of England, and also from Andrew Bailey, who heads the Financial Conduct Authority. Yeah, that's right. So this is the dreaded bonus cap that, as you say, is part of an EU directive that the UK therefore has had to implement. And Mark Carney, and uh, Andrew Bailey last week basically said that after Brexit, the UK could look to roll back some key pieces of regulation, including the bonus cap. Along with it was mentioned bits of solvency too, and also whether challenger banks and building societies should feel the full force of global rules for banks. So this is interesting on a number of levels, and not least because both Mr Carney and Mr Bailey have long pledged that there will be no bonfire of regulations post-Brexit. But I think it's fair to say that the UK has long been sceptical of the bonus cap because it feels that it takes away discretion from regulators to withhold large amounts of pay if they find wrongdoing. 
basically because bonuses are easier to get at than fixed pay. Yeah, if you need to get a fixed pay, you actually, you know, there are questions whether legally you can do that because it's all about property rights and the like, whereas a bonus is discretionary. Very good. Well, I'm sure that'll inflame popular sentiment, but it's an interesting debate that's been reignited there, as you say. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Caroline and Laura here in the studio and Ralph down the line from Zurich. Also, thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.